Well, in 1999, NASA lost a 125 million Mars orbiter because of one tiny error. You see, the engineers from one team used inches and feet and miles in their measurements and sent them to the other team who used the metric system. That mismatch caused them to totally lose this $125 million Mars orbiter, which by now has either crashed and burned or possibly could be orbiting around the sun at this moment instead of Mars. Now, if you think about it, if you were doing a math test and you mixed up imperial versus metric systems, I mean, it's a mistake, but it's not that big of a mistake. But when it's something like this, all right, when something like this is at stake, those little mistakes really matter. Because when stakes are high, tiny mistakes really matter. The higher the stakes, the more the mistakes matter. If you don't believe me, just imagine if you're on the Titanic and the captain ignores the warning about icebergs. Or you've recently purchased one of those dodgy Sydney development apartment buildings and there's a small crack in the foundations. Or you're getting checked for cancer and the doctor misses an important detail in the x-ray. Or you're traveling into Australia, you do your quarantine, but you get a false negative at the end, and you are released into the community with COVID. You see, in Joshua chapter 7, that chapter we've just read, it's easy to think, surely God is overreacting. It was one sin, it was one mistake. Did it deserve such an extreme punishment? Well, not if you understand how high the stakes are. See, I wonder... How do you think about sin among us as a church? How do you think about sin in your life? Do you think, well, there are some sins that really matter, but the sins that, you know, that I have, well, they don't really matter. I mean, Jesus has forgiven me after all. It doesn't really hurt anyone. It's okay to just let it sit there. If you think that, well, let me say today, God will seriously challenge that. So let me pray and ask God to do exactly that. Father, please give us so much of your Holy Spirit to do the heart surgery I know that I cannot do with just words. Open up each heart here. I pray, Holy Spirit, you will reveal what needs to be today, maybe seriously dealt with, seriously repented of, seriously receiving grace and change over. Do that amongst our church every heart here, everyone listening and watching on YouTube. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, why did Achan's sin matter so much? Uh, just a bit of a context, a recap. Remember, Israel are finally about to take the promised land. Last week, we were reminded that if Israel obeyed God, who was among them, this holy God who was leading them, if they obeyed God, they would be assured of victory. Even high walls like Jericho would supernaturally tumble down around them. And with Jericho, we read last week, everything was devoted to the Lord. All of its inhabitants were devoted to destruction. All of its treasures were devoted to Him as an offering. No loot, no plunder was to be taken. But Joshua chapter 7, as we read earlier, opens with, and you'll need to keep your Bibles open today or have them on the app because I won't be uh, showing the, those verses on the overhead. Verse 1 says, But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Kami, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribes of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. 
Now, the result of God's anger is this key verse. If you skip ahead to chapter uh, verse 12, this is really the center of the chapter. This is the key verse. The Lord says, I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Okay? Stakes could not be higher. Now, remember, we looked at this word last week, and if you uh, didn't listen to last week, it's actually a really important sermon to get the background of. But the word was cherem in, uh, in Hebrew. That is devoted to God for complete destruction. And last week we saw it was the wicked Canaanites who were devoted to God for destruction. But now, do you see, because of Achan's sin, God's own people would be cherem. God's own people would be devoted to destruction unless, verse 12, they haremed the offender, right? If not, then God would quickly turn away from his people. They would come to a quick end. Now, we know the ending, of course. The crisis is averted only after the guilty party, Achan, his whole household, is destroyed, is haremed, stoned and burned, all right? We read that earlier. You know the ending, now, again, you might be thinking, that's pretty brutal, right? Isn't that such an overreaction? I don't know if you know, but when um, uh, convicts were first sent to Australia, some of them were sent to Australia just because they stole a loaf of bread. That was an overreaction. But look at this. Can you imagine if theft had a capital punishment? That if you steal, not just you, but your entire family would be executed? That's what's going on here, right? Why did Achan's sin matter so much? Well, as the chapter unfolds, we find out, and I've got four reasons for you. Firstly, because sin is social. In other words, one person's individual sin affects the whole community. Now, did you notice in verse 1, it says, Israel was unfaithful and that the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Skip ahead to verse 11. It says, well, God says, Israel has sinned and violated my covenant. You see, Achan's sin is as if the whole of Israel sinned. Now, that's pretty bizarre and a little offensive, especially to Western years, because we're so individualistic in our thinking. Why does sin have such a social effect? Why should it have such a social effect? Why should it affect families and tribes and whole nations? Well, the answer comes with, who God is and who Israel are as his people. You got it? If you understand who God is and who Israel are as his people, you'll know why. Now, again, you want to listen to last week because we looked in detail at how God is holy. And the idea of holy is that God is set apart, that he is utterly supreme. I use the illustration of being the goat, the greatest of all time. And especially when it comes to moral purity and perfection, God is holy. What about God's people, Israel? Well, they were holy to him. They were set apart for him. So in order to have God in their midst, God as their God, Israel needed to share that same intolerance for sin and impurity. So this being the case, God being who he is, Israel being who they are, I hope you begin to see how sin is therefore not just one person's actions. It doesn't just affect one person. Sin well, it's a, it's a lot more like contamination, right? Like a virus. And we understand that well now, don't we, in our world? You, know, you take COVID, for example, one person's infection or one person's inconsiderateness traveling from Melbourne through New South Wales to Queensland. 
that affects everyone, doesn't it? I mean, until we have vaccination and herd immunity, right? We actually need zero cases, don't we? See, sin is like that, like a virus, like a pandemic, both then and now. I mean, the world out there says, do anything as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. What does God say? God says, your little sin, your private sin, that sin you don't think affects or hurts anyone but you, well, it does. It affects everyone more than you can possibly know. I mean, our world says that if you look at a bit of porn, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't harm anyone. I read a quote this week from the author John Dixon. He wrote on his Facebook page, If I advocate for racial and economic justice by day and watch porn at night, I'm a hypocrite. He's right, you know. Because the porn industry exploits women, children, youth, and the most vulnerable. It is one of the sources of the greatest injustice in our world today. Porn has made the world less safe for women and girls. Study after study shows that sexual harassment and assault among school kids, even primary school kids, have gone up because of porn. It destroys relationships. It pollutes our hearts and our eyes and our desires and our imaginations and our communities. I'm not here to shame you because I know so many people struggle with porn and that might be you today. I'm just here to point out that there is no such thing as sin that only affects me. Sin is social in scope and consequences. In Joshua chapter 7, even there, there are hints after verse 1 that while Achan's sin is the focus, his sins already somehow changed the dynamic of Israel and even Joshua. It's just a hint, but it's there. Verses 2 and 3, you'll notice Joshua and Israel, they start making military plans and they do it confidently. And who wouldn't be confident after Jericho? But you notice God isn't mentioned in their plans. Now, I don't think that's the reason for their defeat. It's very clearly Achan's sin was. But their overconfidence is just one of those things in the first few verses that just doesn't feel right. It's as if something has shifted in the whole community and in Joshua at large because of one person's sin. That's the first point. Sin is social. Why is Achan's sin so serious? Number two, because no sin is secret. Achan sins, but Israel is guilty because sin is social. But then at the next battle, the military outpost of Ai or I, they are soundly defeated. 36 fighting men lose their lives because of it. So Joshua comes before God in a desperate emergency prayer. I mean, would everything be lost now? Has God abandoned them? God answers in verses 10 to 12. This is the reason why. Right? And if this isn't dealt with, the consequence, as we've looked at before, is that Israel itself would become harem, devoted to destruction. So how did all of this happen? Now, of course, we read verse 1. We already know the answer. But remember, in the story, Joshua and the people didn't at this point. So then you've got verses 13 to 18. God does this slow reveal by the casting of lots. All right, because sin is social and sin belongs to the whole of Israel, affects all of them. 
You notice here the whole community, every single tribe was to be involved in this slow reveal. Starts with the tribe, then the clan, then the family, and then one man. All right, you can imagine the suspense building up. It's deliberately slow. The stakes are so high. Who would it be? Verse 18, finally we find out, or Israel finds out, because we already know, Achan is singled out. You see, one man's secret sin was not secret to God. Because God, remember, is holy. When it comes to knowing everything, He is the GOAT, the greatest of all time. And we... Well, do well to remember that. Let me show you a couple of other verses that talk about God knowing everything. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. What about in the New Testament in Hebrews? Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered. And laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Some of you are feeling this weightiness, I hope, right now as you hear these words. Because you know that you cannot hide from God. That we can't hide our true selves from God. Our sins are not secret. And all will be revealed, one way or another. If not in this life, it'll be revealed on Judgment Day. We need to know this, right? If you're right now feeling the heaviness, the conviction, that's a good thing. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Be warned. You cannot fool God. He is holy. Sin, no sin is secret. Number three, because this sin is serious. So as we go on, Joshua confronts Achan and finally Achan speaks. Verse 20, Achan replied, it's true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver, a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. They're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. Now, you might be again thinking, so what? I mean, he coveted and he stole. That kind of thing happens every minute of every day, everywhere. Now, I want you to notice that Achan calls this robe that he sees and this silver and stuff, he calls it plunder. Right? He calls it plunder. He doesn't call it, I stole these items devoted to God, harem, which it was. He called it plunder. In other words, he is minimizing the sin. He's justifying it in his mind. It's plunder. Achan was one of those on the winning side. Don't the winning side deserve to take some plunder for themselves? Do you see? Even in his response, he was making excuses. And I wonder, what excuses do you often make for sin? See, Achan might think it's no big deal. We might think it's no big deal, but God doesn't. Another hint that it's such a big deal is Achan's words actually parallels another. Adam and Eve. Think about the first sin. This idea of seeing something, wanting it, and then taking it. That's what Eve did. She saw the fruit was good, pleasing to the eye, good for food, and she took. That's what Achan did. 
Right? This is not just any sin. It's like the, the sin that caused the whole world to plunge into judgment. And Achan's sin nearly caused the whole people of God to plunge into judgment. This sin is serious. Now, it's worth pausing here to think about that particular sin, covetousness. I think about that. To covet, by the way, is to desire to want something that you don't have. And I wonder, as you think about the, the thing of covetousness, do you, do you think it's that serious, honestly? Is that something that you think is that serious, that we think is that serious? Because let's, let's admit it, covetousness is such a respectable sin, okay? Right? I don't know, that the last time you guys were in a small group and you all went around and talked about sins you're struggling with, how many of you heard covetousness is one of them? Probably none. And it's such a secret sin, isn't it? Because no one sees covetousness. You can't see it externally. In fact, it's such a celebrated sin. I mean, advertising and marketing can't exist without it. Social media feeds off it. But it is serious, isn't it? I'll tell you how serious. God only gave Israel 10 commandments. Do not covet makes the list. And of all the 10 commandments, this is the only command that goes for the heart. Every other commandment you can see, covetousness you can't see, which makes this sin go deeper than the others. And it's one of those sins that affects and is the root of other sins. Um, Let me give you a quote from the book, The Kite Runner. I don't have it up on the screen, just listen. One of the characters says, theft is the one unforgivable sin, the one common denominator of all sins. When you kill a man, you steal a life. You steal his wife's right to a husband. You rob his children of a father. When you tell a lie, you steal someone's right to the truth. When you cheat, you steal the right to fairness. There is no act more wretched than stealing. Now, the Kite Runner is not a Christian book. It's definitely not the Bible. Uh, So don't take that as scripture. But it is insightful, isn't it? And I reckon you can apply what it says about theft to what is actually behind theft, which is always covetousness. You see, to want what you don't have and being willing to do anything to have it, doesn't that lie at the root of so many sins? Like if you covet people, then it may lead you to sexual sins and relational sins. If you covet pleasure, then you might lie and cheat and steal in order to get it. If you covet power, then it might be bullying and abuse. Do you see what I mean? And the New Testament especially links covetousness or greed with idolatry. In other words, the last commandment is linked with the first commandment. That's how serious it is. To want something so much as to be willing to do anything to have it, it makes that thing a replacement God. You've made it into an idol. So you take any idol in your life, career or money or security or popularity, or maybe it's acceptance or other people's affection or pleasure or control or power, you take any of them and you will see that covetousness lies at the root of all of them. See, wanting what you don't have and being willing to give anything to have it is idolatry ultimately, isn't it? 
as I thought about this this week, I realized I need a wake-up call. You need a wake-up call because we live in a world that, again, celebrates covetousness. Every ad, every social media influencer, everything you see is to try and get you to want what you don't have. I think, church, we need to particularly take this sin seriously, don't we? Last of all, why did Achan's sin matter so much? Because God's mercy is severe. See, the chapter ends with the most severe of punishments. Look again, verse 25, Then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor, which uh, sounds like the word trouble, ever since. That's severe, isn't it? Now, I get severe, you get severe, but why did I say God's mercy is severe? Where, Where did the mercy come into this? Sounds pretty merciless, right? Well, no, not if you remember that God in His holiness had every right to destroy all of Israel. In fact, that's what He said. Joshua 6, last chapter, when He gave instructions about Jericho, He said, if you disobey Me, all of Israel would be harem. That's what should have happened. But it didn't happen like that. Instead, one family becomes harem and the rest are spared. That is the severe mercy of God. Now, you see that in the New Testament. There are some examples of this in the early church. Don't turn to it, but in Acts chapter 5, you may know the story of Ananias and Sapphira, instantly struck dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we get examples of people who were sick and died because of abuse of the Lord's Supper in some way. Now, without going into details, there are two New Testament examples of what I would call severe mercy. Again, it's merciful because when swift discipline comes on God's people over sin, it's, believe it or not, it's actually the mercy of God. When these things happen, Ananias, Sapphira, 1 Corinthians 11, it helps the church wake up. It helps the church, hey, sin is serious. We need to get right with God so that we can continue in our purposes and in His purposes for us. Uh, recently, you might know of some really high-profile church leaders who've been revealed and shamed Because of their sin, really high profile. If you don't know about it, don't worry about it. But if you know, you know, okay? It too is the severe mercy of God. Guess what? If God today reveals sin in your life or in our church and He brings discipline, it's mercy. You know, if He lets it go on, that's when you should be worried. So this chapter should... Definitely be a wake-up call to us all, especially, again, if we think that sin in our lives can stay comfortably secret without too much fuss or serious confession and repentance. You see, why Achan's sin mattered is the same reasons why our sins matter. In fact, I want to say even more so for us. It's intensified for us, those four points I made before. Even more so. Why? Because God is even more present in His church Then in Achan's day for Israel. And because guess what? We are even more holy as his church than Israel was. Don't believe me? Have a look at 1 Corinthians 6. Look what it says. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. 
God is even more present. We are even more holy than Israel could possibly have experienced in Joshua. That hasn't changed. It's been intensified. I'll tell you what has changed, though. What has changed is the way that God would deal with sin. All right? The way that God would deal with sin. There's even a hint in Joshua 7. The place named after this incident, Achor, remember it sounds like the word trouble, it's only mentioned one other time in the Bible. It's in Hosea chapter 2, verse 15. We won't look it up, but just take note of it. Hosea 2, 15. There God is speaking to unfaithful Israel, hundreds of years later, by the way, and he makes this promise. He says, I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Really cryptic. Really strange, because the only other time Achor is mentioned is here in, in Joshua 7. I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. What's he saying? In Hosea, in context, he's saying, there will be a time when he will restore his people in spite of their persistent sin. So much so that the place that you only know as the place of punishment and pain and curse would actually become the place of hope. That's what he's saying. Now, where do we see that fulfilled? Where does the place of punishment become the place of hope? You know the answer, don't you? It's the cross of Jesus. Jesus fulfills Joshua 7 in a remarkable way. Just think about it. In Joshua 7, Achan was punished so that the whole community could be spared. Because it was his sin that made the whole community guilty. In Jesus, Jesus is punished so that the whole community could be spared. But here's the difference. Achan's sin infected them. Through Jesus, his righteousness, his perfection could make the whole community righteous. See, as terrible as Harem was... Jesus, as I said last week, became harem in your place, in my place, so we would never have to face hell, which is what harem points to. I just want to remind you, if you're not yet right with God, if you're not yet in a relationship with Jesus, you could do that today. Come and speak to me. Now, in the staff meeting this week, we were talking about this chapter. We are talking about how do, how do you apply this chapter and we're a little bit afraid as the staff were talking about it, because, you know, this chapter has really serious stuff to say about sin. But we know that it's gonna, we're going to have to talk about God's grace, because that's where it ends up. It's about Jesus. But we were afraid that if we talk about God's grace so much and end with that, that it'll then water down the seriousness of sin. You know, Jesus will forgive you. Don't worry about it. Right? That's what we were afraid of. But then we realized that the logic of the New Testament is actually when you talk about God's grace, it would do the opposite. Rather than excusing sin, grace is actually the greatest motivator, isn't it? Not ultimately fear or judgment, but actually grace is the great motivator. You see that in a passage like Romans chapter 2, verse 4, where it says that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. God's kindness, His grace, His mercy actually should woo us, should push us to make us glad today to confess and kill sin in our lives. I love this verse from Come Thou Fountain, which we'll actually sing as a response song. If you really understood grace as the great motivator, you'd understand what, how precious these words are. Do you see what it says? 
Owe to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Do you understand grace? If you do, it will motivate you. Far greater than fear and judgment could motivate you because of the love of God and His willingness to love you in spite of your sin. So let me finish with this. I'll get the band to get, come up and get ready to lead us in sin. Uh, in song, in sin. Not in sin. <laughs> band, do not lead us into sin. Yeah, that's not a good slip. The freedom of confession. I hope, I really pray this week, pray just now that as a result of this very heavy sermon, which again may be sitting very heavily on your heart, and if it, if it is, I, you know, I, I pray that it be the God, the Holy Spirit, putting it on your heart. Um, don't hide sin, right? Don't hide it. Don't let it go on any longer. Will you today bring sin into the light? Remember, because of grace, you have every reason to. Because when you bring it into the light and you confess it, it will not lead to judgment. There will not be another Achan situation. Because Jesus already paid for it. Right? Confession leads you to forgiveness. And most of all, if you've really understood the Word of God on your life and the heaviness the Holy Spirit brings, and you might have been sitting with this on your conscience for a long time, it brings freedom. And God wants that for you. Freedom. Let me say to you, if you have secret sins, undealt with sins, especially of the respectable variety, okay? Like things like gossip, again, no big deal in our world. Anger, as long as you don't hit anyone. Jealousy, and we all feel it anyway. Pride, you deserve to feel proud. Unforgiveness, well, they did that to you, right? All of those are respectable sins, but maybe gossip, anger, jealousy, pride, unforgiveness, whatever. Maybe those are the ones that you've been cherishing and haven't dealt with and haven't confessed. Today, will you do four things? Just a suggestion. Firstly, confess it to God. Really deal with it. No excuses. Secondly, confess it to one other person, at least one, more if you like, but just choose one Christian person you respect who loves you, whom you love and trust. If you don't know who that is, come and speak to me. Confess it to me. Number three, ask for help and do what it takes. Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Do whatever it takes. It helps if the person you're confessing it to can give you some of those suggestions. If not, again, come and talk to me. But then last of all, trust daily that God's grace will get you through, will empower you, it's not going to be overnight success, probably going to be a struggle constantly, but God's grace will, if you trust in Him, change you. Why don't we pray and we'll get ready to sing. Father, we pray that Your grace would constrain us, that Your grace what you've done for us, the way you loved us, the way you're willing to forgive us through Jesus, that might cause even the most fearful heart here today to be willing to confess and bring sin into the light. And may your goodness like a fetter bind our wandering hearts to you. Amen.